You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. There are many places in the world where Christianity is persecuted. You may be familiar with that, you may not be, but most of the world's land surface is not, not conducive to the spread of the gospel. And places like China, uh, the Middle East, are certainly some countries that we think of when it comes to persecution. But Nigeria is one of those places. And Nigeria is in the horn of, of Western Africa, kind of the curve there next to Benin. It's the sixth largest country in the world by population. And it actually has been very violent in its opposition to Christians in recent years. And I have a story about one man, one man named Abdul he was a Muslim, and that's where the persecution comes from, is, is Muslim groups. And Abdul took great pride in attacking Christians. At the age of five, his family put him under the care of an imam, uh, a priest, scholar, teacher in the Islamic tradition. And he studied there for 12 years with 40 to 50 other boys. They learned the Quran and recited it for hours in the morning. They begged for food. They studied the teachings of jihad. And as you can imagine, what this did over time is it, it fomented in him a, a hatred for Christianity and a love for violence. And he began his jihadist career at the age of 17. He organized attacks against Christians, planting car bombs, leading riots. He even earned the nickname Mr. Insecticide because he viewed killing Christians like killing mosquitoes. This man loved violence. He would even, in his twisted mind, thought it enjoyable to go back to the scene of his crimes. And after there was a bombing, he would go back and watch and look at the damage because he loved to see what he was doing. And ultimately, his, his actions were motivated by religious beliefs. He believed he was doing service to his God, Allah, and that he would gain paradise for his work. And that sounds... A whole lot like the Apostle Paul. Abdul is a modern day Saul of Tarsus. Paul, formerly Saul, not only persecuted the church, he led the opposition to persecute the church. Yet something happened to this man Saul. Because we don't think of him primarily as the persecutor. We think of him primarily as the apostle. In Galatians 1, 13 through 16, our text today we read about Paul's former life as a violent adversary of the gospel. And we read about his conversion by the grace of God. And the transformation was dramatic. He was, as the sermon title is today, he was arrested by God's grace. He did not set out to go looking for Jesus. And yet the grace of God came and, and grabbed hold of him. Though this story took place 2,000 years ago, I really think it's a beacon of hope today. Because his story isn't just another one of those heartwarming things where, oh, a, a nice a man that was kind of violent, he, he became peaceful. No, a man who was a hater and persecutor of the church of Jesus became gloriously saved. And his conversion has a life-altering truth embedded in it. And so I want to ask a simple question today. What does Paul's conversion story show us? 
What difference does his conversion 2,000 years ago make for our lives today? And there are three simple things, two main points, and then one big idea. What does Paul's conversion show us today? First, Paul's conversion shows us what life apart from Christ is really like. Look at verse 13 with me. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul was hostile to Christ and sought to advance himself. And so what is life like apart from Christ? It's hostile to the things of God. And and I recognize right at the beginning that it's going to look a little different today than it did for Paul back then. I'm guessing that in our context here, no one has gone and murdered Christians. But if you have, this message is still for you. We are all hostile to God, to the things of God, when we are born into this world. Let's look at Paul first. What did Paul do? He persecuted the church of God. And the verse says he did this beyond measure. That phrase means to an extraordinary degree. That even other people who are hostile against the church would look and say, Woo, that guy, he's like the gold standard. He's way out there. His goal, he says here at the end of verse 13, was to try to destroy it. And that's not really the, the strength that's communicated with this Greek expression. It means to annihilate it. His goal was to wipe the church off the map. And from the moment Paul enters the scriptural narrative, he's violently hostile to the church. From the very beginning, in Acts chapter 7, the first martyr, his name is Stephen, he's killed. And where is Saul? Saul is standing by, kind of overseeing the events that took place, watching the coats of those who were doing this evil deed. He consented, he approved that death. And and that death didn't just satisfy his bloodlust, it stirred up this, this, this nasty, violent streak in his heart. Because the very next chapter, Acts chapter 8, talks about him breathing out threatenings against the church and going from door to door, pulling Christians out, throwing them in jail. In Acts chapter 9, the very next chapter, Saul is still being talked about with persecution. And Acts 9, 1 and 2 says, Then Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So not only was he going and persecuting the people around him, he was on a mission. He says it. I was trying to destroy the church. That's exactly what he was trying to do. He even got permission from his religious authorities to go to a faraway city, Damascus, and find Christians and attack them. And yet, while, it was traveling, while he was traveling to Damascus for this very purpose of persecuting Christians, it was at that moment that Jesus revealed himself to him. In summary, Paul relentlessly persecuted the church, for he was hostile to God and the things of God. And Though you may not have engaged in violent attacks against Christians, the Bible says, actually, that we're all born hostile to God. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who once were alienated, that means separated from God, and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's our life apart from Christ, hostile. To be hostile is to hate something, to be opposed to it, to be set against it, and And that's every person's attitude when they're born into this world. Now you may be saying, I'm not hostile though. You got me wrong. I'm the exception here. But are you? Are you the exception to this? 
to, to say that you're not hostile is, is actually to make a pretty stunning claim because hostility toward God isn't just, I hate God. Remember what I just said. Hostility is to be opposed to God, to be set against God. God has commanded all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel and submit to him. And so what does it mean to be hostile to God? It means that if you haven't agreed with God and submitted to him in repentance and faith, then you're hostile to him. You've not obeyed him. God actually doesn't give us the liberty to simply tolerate God or appreciate him or even be friendly toward him and have good thoughts toward him. He doesn't give us that room. Romans 8, 7 says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The person who does not yield to Christ by faith is by definition hostile to God because they're resisting Christ. And I think a a classroom of children illustrates this. Parenting illustrates this, right? If you have a classroom of children, kindergarten, preschool, early elementary, and you, I mean, this applies to college too, truthfully, but if you give them a command, you have 15 students, the command is you must go do this thing. There is going to be a variety of reactions to that command. Some are going to flat out just say, no, I'm not going to do it. Others are going to pretend like they don't hear you. And if you're a teacher, you're like, oh, I know those kids. Oh, I didn't, I didn't hear you. Yes, you did. Others are going to nod their heads and not do what you say. Others are going to do what they want anyway. And so there's a variety of responses, but ultimately, it doesn't matter what the response is if you've disobeyed. If you've not obeyed the command, you're hostile to that command. And that's the way it is with us as people. The pushback may look different in different people, but anything less than obedience toward God shows hostility. And, and there are certainly degrees to hostility, okay? Uh, Paul was on the extreme degree, but unfortunately, God doesn't grade us on a curve. God doesn't grade us on a curve. It doesn't matter if you're just a little bit hostile. It doesn't matter if you're in the classroom and the one who's pretending not to listen and you're sweet about it and you're smiling. You're still not obeying. Those who are hostile to God are those who are opposed to him and his ways. And that's what Paul was. And the scriptures are very clear that those who are hostile to God will face God's judgment. They're liable to eternal punishment in hell. But Paul wasn't just hostile to the things of God. He spent his entire life, up until that journey on the Damascus Road, pursuing selfish advancement. Look at verse 14. He says, And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Life apart from Christ is spent on advancing self. Paul was a rising star in Judaism. He was climbing the ladder beyond his contemporaries, he said. He advanced because he was extremely zealous in, his, in the practice of his faith, and his zeal led him to persecute the church, as we've seen. Well, who was this guy, Paul? Paul was born in Tarsus, which is in modern-day uh, Turkey. It's near Syria. It was a leading city. It had a very large library. But he was educated in Jerusalem at the feet of one of the leading Pharisees. And that man's name was Gamaliel. He's actually in the scriptural narrative. Paul grew up studying under Gamaliel, which would have been like going to a prestigious university today, like Harvard or Oxford. He had the best of education. And when he grew up, he became a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were actually the heroes of the the local people. 
They were the ones who hadn't sold out to the Romans. They were the ones trying to obey the law. They were the ones teaching the common people. And they were meticulous in their obedience to the law. They invented things on top of the law, which is one of Jesus' major criticisms with criticisms of them. They weren't content to simply obey the law. They had a whole system that they went about adding on to the law. Paul was a Pharisee. He was well thought of, well respected. And in fact, in in Philippians chapter 3, he says concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. He was flawless. No one could say, Paul, you've messed up in your practice of religion. And yet he also says in Philippians 3 that all these things that were gained to me, I had to lose those to win Christ. Because all of this gain ultimately was spent on himself, on advancing himself. He was doing everything right, yet he was so wrong. He could even claim with intensity and zeal that that he was keeping the law, and yet that didn't matter. And ultimately, just like Paul's orientation was on himself, left to ourselves, we are very selfish. We love ourselves. 2 Timothy 3 tells us about the quality of people in the last days. And the very first thing on this laundry list of sins is lovers of themselves. Men in the last days shall be lovers of themselves. Does that describe our culture today? To be a lover of ourselves? Certainly. Do you know what the official slogan is for the state of New York? If you think about it for more than 10 seconds, you'll probably get it. I love New York. I heart New York. That, I mean, that's their slogan, right? I mean, you've seen it. Maybe, you, maybe someone here even has a t-shirt. Now, I grew up in New Hampshire, in New England. We hated New York. I even had a t-shirt in, in high school that said, I cheer for two baseball teams, the Red Sox and whoever beats the Yankees. <laughs> but if you're from New York, you love New York, Okay. And the story behind this logo is kind of interesting, actually. In the late 70s, the city was the city of New York, or maybe it was the state, I can't remember which one. They were trying to get more tourism. They were trying to boost tourism to the state. So they hired a marketing company, and, and a guy named Milton Glazer was riding in a taxi, and he had this thought, and he took a crayon and a scrap piece of paper, and he sketched this. And 50 years later, it's still iconic. It's the state motto. When we're born into this world, it's like we have this symbol, I heart me, branded on our souls. And if you've seen infants or children, no one had to teach them that. No one has to teach us to love ourselves. No one has to teach us to look out for our own interest. We live for self because we love ourselves. And and our world tells us that many of our problems are because we don't love ourselves enough. Well, you, you just need more me time. You need to do some self-care. You need need to go and spend more time on you. Don't worry about work. Go do your thing. Be true to yourself. And I I think there's a, a reasonable place for stewardship and rest and recreation. But this whole idea of you don't love yourself enough, it's just a flat out lie. The Bible says very clearly, our problem is that we love ourselves way too much. And we don't love God like we should, and we don't love others like we should. The first great commandment is to love God with all our hearts. Every sinful choice we make, I think we can make an argument, actually is me loving me more than I love God. 
every sinful choice, every word that is unkind, every thought that is jealous, every action that's selfish, every angry word that I say on the road, it's all because I love me more than I love God. And though you may not have been violently persecuting others, the Bible says that sin is still sin. And if you haven't loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're still a sinner. And if you're honest, there's no way that we can live every minute of every day loving God perfectly. There's just no way. It doesn't matter how nice you are on the outside. I'm thankful for nice people. They're much more pleasant to be around than angry people. But at the end of the day, our sinful hearts expose us. We're all sinners before God, hostile to him, selfish in heart. And, and where does that leave us? The Bible says that that leaves us liable to his punishment, under his wrath. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But that verse continues. The wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the but is very important because that's where God steps in. And that's where God stepped into Paul's life. Even though there is no hope apart from Christ, there is hope with him. And that's where Paul's story goes. The second truth that Paul's conversion story shows us is not only what life is like apart from Christ, but that it's God saves sinners by his grace. God saves sinners. So if you're a sinner and you've said, yeah, I am hostile to God, I don't love God the way I should, I have sinned, then this is for you. God saves sinners by his grace. And Acts chapter 9 tells us what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. I'd like to just read this. This is what happened that day on the Damascus road. Remember, he's just gotten letters from the high priest. He's going to Damascus, which is north of Jerusalem, and he's going for the express purpose of persecuting Christians. And this is what happens. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly, a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and, it will be to, and, it, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three nights without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand on him so that he may receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. Go. 
For he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how, much he, how, much, how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me to you that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from Saul's eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Amazing. What was going on in those moments? Well, Paul actually tells us here in Galatians chapter 1 what was really taking place. And and Paul explains this, this event with three key points. First, he says in verse 15, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. This verse is all about God and salvation begins with God drawing sinners to himself. The Bible is very clear that God has the initiative in all things and that includes salvation. 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. And there are three phrases here that, that put the focus in salvation back on God. The first is when it pleased God. And that, that underscores God's sovereign timing in Paul's life. When it pleased God. When it was pleasurable to God to do something. And in other contexts, that word has the idea of determination or choice. In other words, God chose the right time to work in Paul's life. And it was pleasing to God to intervene in the life of this sinner. Saving sinners brings God great glory and great joy. And then the next phrase, God also separated Paul from his mother's womb. And there's certainly an application about the the life or the status of the unborn. But Paul's point here in this passage is that before he was even born, God knew him. And God had chosen him for a special purpose. And that actually reflects the same thing that God told to Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 1.5, before God says, before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign in salvation. He has chosen believers. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. 1 Peter 1.2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. God elects believers to be saved. It's a sign of his great grace and mercy. Because like Paul, we're not looking for him. And he sets his heart on us. And then God draws people. Paul also says that God called him through his grace. God was the one acting to draw Paul to himself. And that's the same thing that Jesus said in John 5, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now Paul is teaching the doctrine of salvation and and it does raise some questions. Maybe what we've just said makes you a little uncomfortable. Because there's this age-old question of how can God be completely sovereign and and men and women still have a free choice? How does that work together? How can God elect and we still have a free will to choose? Well, I'm not going to solve the mysteries of the universe here. But there are three things that I think we can think about that help us explain this passage. First, Every time the doctrine of election and choice is mentioned in Scripture, it is given to genuine believers as an encouragement to them. 
It's always used in the context of encouraging genuine believers. Why? So that they can persevere through life. It's not meant for us to debate whether or not we're chosen. Am I in? Am I out? That's not our place to decide because, second, God invites us to receive salvation. There is a real, genuine offer of salvation. And the Bible shows us that we can't get to God someday and say, well, it's your fault that I didn't get saved, God. That's an unbiblical thought. God sent Jesus because he loved us. Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and offers salvation as a gift, and we have a choice to make. God's sovereignty never removes human responsibility. So how then does does God's sovereignty and our free will work together? I, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me, and there's no theologian I've read that can explain it. But I can assure you, it makes sense in the mind of God. It makes sense to God. And if you've never received Christ as Savior, this is what you must do. Don't worry about God's part of this. He's already provided the way of salvation. It's your responsibility. You have a choice. Today, 2 Corinthians 6-2, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. But third... The Bible points to God as the initiator of salvation, the one who raises the spiritually dead, the one who opens blind eyes. How does he do this? Well, he does this through gospel preaching as it proclaims Jesus to sinners. And though Paul didn't sit in a church building like we are today, he had Jesus revealed to him. He was arrested by Jesus. And this shows us, second, that salvation comes through a relationship with Jesus. God revealed his son in Paul that he might preach him among the Gentiles. Salvation comes through a relationship with Jesus. On the road, Jesus appeared to Paul and showed him who he was. The same Jesus who died on the cross and rose again appeared to him. And 2 Corinthians 4 says that all over the world, through the preaching of the word, Jesus is being revealed to blind eyes. Paul was confronted by the risen Jesus and believed in him. And you remember what happened after Ananias laid his hands on him? There was something like fish scales or like cataracts that fell from his eyes. And this gave Paul sight, but it's also symbolic. For every person that comes to Jesus is blind and needs their eyes given sight. That's what the gospel does. Spiritual sight comes when we see Jesus and enter a relationship with him. And that relationship comes through the wording of verse 16, to reveal his son in me. And there may be a couple of your translations that you're holding, your Bibles that say, to reveal his son to me. The New King James gets it right. The Greek word is in, not to. And that actually matters because what it's pointing to is that salvation comes through our union with Jesus. That's, that. It's not just a bunch of mental things we believe and we can check it off and get a certificate for our salvation course. It's a relationship with the living God of the universe and we're united to him by faith. And when we confess Jesus as Savior, he gives us a new identity. He recreates us. We have a new destiny. We're guaranteed eternal life because of our relationship with his son. And there's one more point there here that Paul makes. If that wasn't good enough, 
God saves sinners by his grace. And in verse 16, God, Paul, God called the apostle Paul to preach among the Gentiles. And the, the point that we can distill out of this is that salvation gives each person a new purpose in life. And this next phrase in verse 16 starts with the words, in order that, or that. That's a purpose clause, grammatically. So why did, Paul, why, why did God save Paul? Well, he saved Paul to serve him, to represent him, to be a witness of him. He called this man to preach the gospel. Now, Paul is unusual here. Not in that he had a new purpose to live for but that he had a very specific call at the moment of his salvation. Most people who accept Christ as Savior do not have a specific mission that they feel led to immediately. Most of us receive Christ and then discover as we walk with him what he wants us to do with our lives. But at the moment of salvation, we do have a new purpose, which means that we are now representatives of Christ. We're part of Jesus' spiritual body. Even on the road to Damascus, do you remember how Paul how Jesus confronted Paul. He said to him, why are you persecuting me? Paul had never touched Jesus, but he was touching Jesus' followers who are Jesus' body. And when we are saved, we become the body of Christ. We are the visible representation of Jesus to the world around us. That's our purpose. And we also are given the purpose of being his witnesses, to have the gospel entrusted in us in these, in these vessels of, of weakness and given to other people. This word preach the gospel is not the normal word for preaching, heralding like we're doing now, like I'm doing now. It's the word that means to share the good news. It was used in Acts 8-4 of normal believers who went all over sharing the witness about Christ. It's our responsibility. It's every believer's privilege to share the good news concerning Jesus. So what does Paul's conversion story show us today? Well, he shows us first what life apart from Christ really is like. It's hopeless. It's hostile. It's selfish. But Paul's conversion also shows us that God saves sinners by his grace. Yet there is one more thing that Paul's conversion shows us. And it is a life-giving, hope-energizing, eternity-altering reality. If God, by his grace, could save a blaspheming, murderous, persecutor of Christ's body, then no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. No one at all. If you are here hearing the gospel, there is hope for you. And this grace doesn't end after we're saved. God's grace continues to work in our lives. But, but I want to speak to those who are unbelievers. Because you are not too far gone. There's no stone left unturned. You, you're not too far down the road. God's grace can save you. And we've, we've talked about good sinners and bad sinners. And in, in a way, Paul is both of those things. Paul was a really bad sinner. He was a murderer. He was a persecutor. And God saved him and transformed him. And if you say, I got a rap sheet, I've got a criminal record, I've done some heinous things that no one knows about, God can save you. But Paul was also a good sinner. He was religious. He was esteemed highly. He did all the right things, and yet he was still trusting in himself for salvation. And, and even in his goodness, 
He needed someone to save him from himself. And if you're a good sinner, you're a moral person, you're kind, you're gracious, you're helpful, you're altruistic, you practice religion, but you're lost, the gospel's for you too. You need Jesus to forgive your sins. Because though to our human eyes, the bad sins are really bad and the good sins aren't that big of a deal, every sin is costly. And so every sinner, good or bad, should repent, believe the gospel, and call on Jesus to forgive them. To agree with God, to say, Lord, I have sinned, and I recognize that it separates me from you forever. And I believe what Jesus has done. I believe that he is the Son of God. I believe that he came and died, and I received his gift of salvation. I want new life in him. I want new life in him. And what an amazing story Paul's was. And what an amazing story our friend Abdul had. Because he, like the Apostle Paul, was saved. He confessed with his mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in his heart that God raised him from the dead. You see, after bombing a church, Abdul returned to view the damage. But to his shock, the church members who survived had gathered and were singing in the rubble. And he was angry. He was ticked. He said, I've got to change my strategy. I can't just destroy their buildings. I've got to infiltrate them from the inside. So the next day, he went to the pastor and said, I want to be a Christian. And they accepted him. They loved him. And for six years, he lived a double life. He was baptized. He integrated himself in the church while still sneaking off to the mosque and and praying. He even persecuted Christians in other locations. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for him to lead a young adult Bible study and in the same week go bomb another church building across town. And the double life, he thought he could live forever, but it couldn't last. And he went to a conference where the gospel was being preached and he said by his own testimony, it was like the speaker knew me. He was calling on people to stop living a double life, to stop persecuting Christians, to come clean in your relationship with the Lord. And the spirit of God convicted his heart that day he believed and the church was shocked. His friends were angry and he started experiencing persecution, intense persecution. The Lord spared him and he lived and has lived For many decades now, faithfully serving the Lord, ministering to those who are quietly seeking, but also reaching out to those who persecute the church just like he did, being a light and a testimony to them, just like Paul was. He truly is a modern-day example of Paul, a man who formerly persecuted the church but ended up being saved by God's grace. And God's still saving people today. God's still at work. His grace is still powerful. And that means no one, not even you, no one is beyond the reach of his grace. Would you pray with me as we conclude our service? Father, what a testimony that Paul had. What a testimony this other man, Abdul, had that we'll meet in heaven someday that no matter how sinful we've been, no matter how good we've been, we need the grace of God in our lives. And I pray today as your spirit now moves and works 
that those that are here that don't know Christ as Savior would, would be convicted of their sin and receive him. That they would seek us out afterward to find us, to ask for more information, to ask for how to do this. And I pray that you would save souls today. Father, please work and please build your church here in our location. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.